Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Well, uh, no Faisal today. Rob, it's you and me, Rob Gary, joining me as my co-host uh, on a session. Listen, there's been this summer we've had some vacations. People can travel again, and you've been filling in for myself, for Faisal, and doing a fantastic job. And I appreciate all of your efforts and, uh, and what you've been to, doing. Yeah, it's been great to be here. I'm filling in. It's uh, filling big shoes, small shoes. <laughs> But uh, I'm glad that everyone's got a chance to have their break too, right? Because it's, yeah. it's well-deserved as well. Well, and yours is yeah. coming up here right away, yeah. and so that'll be fantastic for you. Listen, we've got a pretty cool show today. Um, where does Calgary rank? You know, when you live in a place, we often take for granted where we live, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and Calgary, we've been through some hard times with oil since 2014. Things are coming back, and, you know, we go through these cycles. But where does Calgary rank in the bigger picture, I think people are going to be very surprised mm -hmm. um, from an international perspective where Calgary, where Calgary fits. At least I hope they're happy if they're not surprised when they hear the results of that. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to go straight to London uh, for the research um, and, and stick around for that. The other thing we want to talk about uh, is, is um, a listener reached out to us with a, uh, a difficult situation from an estate perspective. Um, and it was a, it, it's a potential problem where the estate might have more liabilities than it has assets. Mm -hmm. Who's on the hook for that? We're going to get some, um, some legal context to that uh, in this show. So stick around for that. I think you'll find that very interesting. Um, and as always, uh, the markets are interesting. Mm -hmm. So uh, this week, um, there were some ups and downs, but we generally see a bit of a, a rally continuing right. in the equity markets. And we did get some further uh, data around inflation, U.S. inflation in particular. Yeah. And I think all those things were influencing the markets a little bit. What, what was your kind of your, your, your takeaway? Well, there's a hypersensitivity to any news that's coming out, especially economic related yeah. right now. And so the U.S. numbers that were printed this week on inflation, CPI numbers came out. Um, and the market were, holds its breath ahead of this number now, right? Big, big time. Big so time. you see a sell-off generally before that number as people get to the sidelines because they're just not sure what the heck's... They don't know. Right? What's going to happen, Yeah. right? And central banks will be watching these very yeah. closely. Yeah. So what did we get? We, um, we were below expectation, but flat month over month. And right. I think that was the bigger number that the market was starting to digest and say, right. okay, have we plateaued here? Right. Right. And you were looking at manufacturer numbers. Yeah. Well, and, and just sticking with uh, the manufacturing numbers, to your point, also came in below expectation. Mm -hmm. The headline numbers are still very high. Uh, there's no question. Uh, market knows that it's not going to fall off a cliff in, in reverse. So that's not really the, the, the issue, right? It's the trend. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about that. The, the, the market needs to see, as does the central banks worldwide, need to see if their efforts in raising rates, removing some of the monetary stimulus, is having the desired effect. And remember, right. let's talk about what the desired effect is. Like when, when a central bank is, is raising interest rates, um, or, or, or they're modifying their bond buying program, um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to balance supply and demand. Right, so from a very simple perspective, Rob, I, I think of inflation as too much money chasing too few things or goods or mm -hmm. services, right? And that tends to push prices up. We've gone through a pretty unique period where it's not been a demand problem, it's been a supply problem, mm -hmm. right? Through COVID has created supply chain problems and lockdowns and so on and so forth. Okay, so the central bank, to the extent it can, and can't control this completely, 
it's got to use the mechanisms that, that it's got at its disposal to try to bring demand down, mm -hmm. right? Take those people, the marginal buyers of whatever those goods are, take them out of that system, reduce that demand, and that could bring supply demand into balance. And then right. we get price stability, right? And the question the market is trying to figure out is, is it working? Mm -hmm. So this week's data, both from a CPI perspective, which is the consumer, and the wholesale, the PPI, which right. is right the producer prices, coming down. And then when you look under the hood, like you said, not, not, the headline doesn't tell us everything. You look under the hood, month over month, and you know what areas, you start to see some data that might indicate we've peaked, right, and it's starting to trend down. Now that affects all markets, right? So we've seen since the beginning of July, um, and some of this data coming out, confirmed by this most recent data past week. You know, you're starting to see equity markets respond positively. You're seeing bond markets um, starting to rally. Here's my question to you. Are we out of the woods? Whew. So the answer is, I don't know yet, but I think that the clarity or reflection point that we're in, we still need more data. Mm -hmm. And we still need more data for the next couple of months because we're still forward looking back. Right. I still think that the federal banks are going to have to raise rates, yep. they will, on their program. How aggressive is the question? Right. Yep. And the bond market is now pricing in that there may not be as aggressive and the market reacted positively to this week to that, uh, that data. Yeah, w which is interesting data because, uh, so I went through that context because ultimately what we're seeing is weakening economic data, mm -hmm. aren't we? And, and people go, well, how is the, the data is weakening but markets are going higher? What's <laughs> going on there, right? And so if you think about it in the context of trying to bring supply and demand into balance. Now, the question the market still has to address um, is, will, we, will, will the U.S., let's just talk U.S. because they're the granddaddy of the global economy. Um, will the U.S. go into a recession? Now, mm -hmm. we're in a technical recession, I suppose, already, right, with two negative quarters of GDP. But will we go into a shallow recession? Will the central bank will it go there? Not a foregone conclusion, like no. you said. Risks, I think, have increased that we're going towards that maybe in the first half of mm -hmm. next year. Um, but as you said, we've got, you know, we, we, we need more data. And so I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Well, and the other data point that is holding this all up is obviously the employment data that came in right on. a couple weeks ago. Right on. Mm -hmm. And it's been strong. Strong. So that's a good indicator, right? I mean, employment can be a, um, a leading indicator in many cases of a problem. And, you know, one of the questions I think we've got to, one of the points we've got to keep our eye on is with employment, um, I would expect we're going to see unemployment increase. Now, again, I'm going to use U.S. because that's the best data, but if we look at the historical lows of 3.6% unemployment, mm -hmm. could we see unemployment go up 4, 4.5, something like that? We could, and it would still be at historically low numbers, right? Right. So we, we could still see an employment number go up. Central bank will be concerned about that because they have a dual mandate of price stability and employment, right? Um, but there's some wiggle room in there. Mm -hmm. I, what I'm interested in is to see in the U.S. they've got two job openings for every applicant, right? For every unemployed person that wants a job. Yeah. So if we get a scenario where companies hire their freeze or freeze their hiring, excuse me, and you see some of those jobs get taken out, and employment just unemployment just creep up a little bit, 
Um, it's going to be very difficult to get to a traditional recession when we say that word where there's mass unemployment, people are losing their jobs, they're foreclosing on their house and all those right. kinds of things, if the employment number stays strong. Yep. So I think we have to keep our eye very closely tuned to what's happening in the employment markets. Yeah, that's going to be the huge data point here going forward. Yeah. Um, anything else catch your eye this week that... Um, oil... Oil was a little, we still had some volatility on oil, which yep. is again a, a supply demand. Yep. Right? Yep. Seems to be demand coming down. Yep. Prices at the pumps, I notice. Well, <laughs> coming down. Everybody else, I'm sure, has noticed that too. <laughs> I had to fill up the other day. It was less than what it was a month ago. <laughs> and is that affecting inflationary numbers too? Right? Sure will. It sure will, right? Absolutely. Okay, so we know that the markets are continuing to, to keep their eyes peeled on, on the inflation, the trend. And interest mm -hmm. rates. Uh, listen, that that we're not out of the woods on that. We've got we've got um, some areas to go yet, but we'll keep you informed about what we see and what we're keeping our eye on, so that you can keep your eye on it as well. <laughs> Sometimes in Calgary, the weather gets nasty and it gets mm -hmm. cold, and you know we complain about you know living in Canada or in Calgary <laughs> and and so on and so forth. And it turns out that Calgary might not be such a bad place to live. So, you know, there's uh, every year we, we see research done on various cities around the world and livability and there's so on and so forth, uh, you know, lots of input put around that. And we're going to explore that today because Calgarians might actually be surprised about how good our city is. Pleasantly surprised, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> Anna Nichols is an industry analyst director uh, at the Economist Intelligence Unit and she's joining us today. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Now, um, you're just north of London. Uh, we're sitting here in Calgary, and we're going to talk about uh, the, the various cities around the world and, and the livability. But, so you guys do some research on, on these cities. Maybe you can just give us a little bit of background, first of all, before we go into the rankings about what do you look for in a, in a city that's, um, you know, that makes it a livable city? Yes, yeah, so we score uh, cities across the world um, on five categories. We score them on stability, which broadly means kind of um, political stability, but also that the rules work, the laws are, are enforced. Uh, we score them on the healthcare provision. We score them on the culture and environment, which includes the climate. You mentioned Canada's climate. Um, and we score them on education systems, so the availability of schools, and also the infrastructure, including the public transport. And we do this um, primarily for the sake of kind of senior executives who might be moving to that city and want to know what the kind of standard of living they can expect in that city is going to be. We also do it for the sake of the cities. The cities like to compare themselves, know where they're falling short. Um, and so, you know, it's a useful exercise just to see which are the most kind of livable, comfortable cities. We're not talking about the, you know, ones you'd want to visit. We're talking about the ones you like to live in on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, um, uh, that's interesting. So, given that, um, and you're scoring, how many countries do you score around the world in total? Or uh, cities, <sighs> excuse me. Yeah, cities. So we used to score it. We've been doing this survey for about 20 years now. Um, twice yeah. a year we do it. And we used to score 140. This year we actually added another 44 um, cities, but we had to drop one. And that one was Kiev because we couldn't complete the survey right. in Kiev because the war broke out just as we were doing the survey. So we've ended up with a survey of 173 cities um, across the world. I mean, they're they're 
fairly evenly spread. I'd say probably fewer in Middle East and Africa, but, you know, basically a good uh, cross-section of the biggest cities across the world. Well, yeah, we have a lot of conversations, Dave, with clients and listeners about where we'd want to live in, in the yeah. heart of the winter. Yeah. It's the Bahamas or somewhere. That's where <laughs> we'd rather warm. live, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, this, this report, Anna, it showed three cities in Canada in the top ten. So I found that interesting. Calgary, Vancouver, and Toronto. And so what specifically mm. is drawing Can Canadian cities to the top of this list? Well... It's, it's interesting. Canada has always done pretty well in this survey, I have to say, because it has the stability. It has good investment in, in public services and in infrastructure. Um, and it also has a relatively good investment in terms of culture and environment as well. So Canada does normally do pretty well in this survey. I have to say that last year and the year before, the survey was obviously massively skewed by the pandemic. So a lot of cities, and particularly those cities that were quite strict about the pandemic and, and about making sure that people didn't infect each other, they got scored down because obviously shops were shut, museums were shut, and so we couldn't score them high on that culture and environment section. And so Canadian cities dropped as a result of that, but they've all bounced back again, um, and they really do pretty well. I mean, if you're talking about Calgary specifically, it gets the, the maximum possible scores in three of the five categories I mentioned. Mm. So in terms of healthcare, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, it gets 100 out of 100. Mm. So let's talk about, uh, about um, where we rank. And we won't hold Toronto against you. You know, we're out west here. I don't know that I would agree that anybody should be living in Toronto, but so be it. We'll, we'll take your, your math for what it is. Um, I'm going to have you compare and contrast, if you would, Anna, to the extent you can, the number one position and where we fall in Calgary. And you, uh, I'll do the drum roll. You can tell us where we are in the most livable cities in, in the world. Um, so maybe start with that and then compare and contrast uh, the number one ranked city for us. Yeah, okay. So in first place, we had Vienna. Um, in second place, we had Copenhagen in Denmark. And in third place, drum roll, we had Zurich and Calgary tied for third place. Hmm. So I mentioned that Calgary got top possible scores in three of the categories. Where it fell down slightly was in terms of stability. And one of the things that played into that, I have to say, were the anti-vaccine protests that were taking place at the time when we did the survey. Um, so that was February to March this year. Um, so that, that was obviously a, a slight kind of downward score in terms of the stability ranking. But also Calgary didn't do quite as well as Vienna in terms of culture and environment. I mean, if, if you think both Vienna and Copenhagen, they're capital cities. They've been there for hundreds of years as kind of major tourist um, destinations. They've got loads and loads of attractions and they get the best possible kind of orchestras and, and operas, etc. That, that their countries can provide. So uh, to my mind, it's really impressive that Calgary managed to push itself up um, into third place. Um, but it just did fall slightly short on that culture and environment section. You can see that as a 
you know, as a relatively new city, as Anna said, right? We've got yeah. we've got yeah. a couple of hundred years to sort of try to catch up in some of those areas, but um, absolutely, I, I I think that's fantastic. So so having done all this research, Anna, if there was one thing you could say to Calgary's city council right now to try to improve, aside from you got to be a couple of hundred years older, what would you say? <laughs> You've got to be a couple of hundred years older. I mean, I suppose <laughs> there's not. I mean, there's not an awful lot I can say. The scores are really close, right at the top. I mean, Vienna got ninety nine point one, Calgary got ninety six point three. It's it's really right. close at the top, and it is just those really little things that swing it in terms of the kind of you know cultural offering um, in those cities. It's really hard to see what what Calgary could do, but I mean, I suppose just making sure that those that those cultural and environmental attributes it does have. I mean, you know, the Olympics of the you know the Winter Olympics facilities that were put in place; those are kind of kept up to date um, and kept in good condition. And also that there's you know that there's lots to do basically in the city. Uh, I mean, that's that's all that Calgary can do, as far as I can see. Well, that's fantastic, and I Just want to thank you, you very doing. much for taking some. Yeah, thank you for taking <laughs> some time out of your your busy day to join us and and uh, extol the virtues of the city that we live in. Because sometimes we forget, I think, how good <laughs> the city is. Thank you very much. It is good. Great. Thanks, Rob. We often talk. So, so this show is about more than money, right? So it's about finance and mm -hmm. it's about lifestyle. And when we talk about uh, retirement, we talk about the the various phases. Uh, of a family's financial life cycle, and all of us will get to that final phase, mm -hmm. right? The final phase is when we have to transition um, our estate and any assets that are left over uh, to the next generation, how to do that, right? And there's considerations around tax, there's considerations around, uh, around family dynamics, there's considerations um, uh, around... Um, the gift uh, itself. The, yeah, yeah, how the gift, what, yeah. what gift you're giving and how it's received. Really, it's, it's actually a fairly complex issue uh, that I think many people... Um, they don't think about, and sometimes it can become too late. Now, we're joined by, um, by Catherine Zhang, who's been a long-term recurring guest and um, content provider around uh, estates and whatnot. And, and Catherine, it's, it's, uh, it's been a while, but we're happy to have you back. Thanks for joining us. So Catherine is a partner at Walsh LLP and is a trusted resource of ours. Um, Catherine, I'm going to start with a, a bit of a scenario. We had a listener reach out to us, and it was a bit of a, uh, uh, I think, a tricky situation and we'll get some general uh, guidance from you on this. I'm not going to go through all the specifics of it, but essentially, um, here's the problem: is um, is a, a parent passed away, um, the estate, as they're winding it up, has some liabilities against it, and uh, it turns out not enough assets to cover all of the liabilities. Now, the question is, when you run into a situation like that, um, and I'm not sure lots of people do. You can maybe comment on it, but when you run into a situation like that. What happens? What are, what are the considerations? What does this person need to think about? Who's on the hook for the money? And what's the what exposure does, say, an executor have? Uh, those are great questions. And it's not an uncommon situation that we get calls or inquiries about. Um, I think the first thing we always um, walk through with executors um, is, number one, um, determine whether or not you're prepared to administer the estate 
um, having regard to what you know about it. So if you have the feeling that, yeah, there might be some um, creditors outstanding at the end of the day, just have a think about whether or not you're prepared to proceed. Uh, because especially in those circumstances, um, certainly the creditors and the beneficiaries of the estate are going to be watching the accounts very closely uh, to make sure that if there isn't um, any money at the end of the day that those pennies have been accounted for. Um, if the executor has confirmed, notwithstanding all of that information, that yes, they'd still like to proceed in, and we often get that um, family members are really interested in making sure their loved one's affairs are um, are settled in a, properly. And so uh, to give the rest of the family peace of mind, I think a lot of executors do decide to proceed. Um, and we say, as long as you have um, made sure that you've uh, notified all the creditors appropriately and you've dealt with all of the assets appropriately, if there is still money owed at the end of the day, that is not something that you are personally liable for. Um, the caveat being, of course, is um, it is really important to have discussions with those creditors. Um, and there, in the legislation, the Estate Administration Act, there is um, some guidance to executors on how um, assets should be distributed amongst creditors. And it depends on if they're secured or not. Um, it depends on what type of assets are being um, uh, gifted in the estate, um, whether there's specific bequests or whether it's a general bequest. So there are some rules about that. Uh, but um, nevertheless, if the executor has not properly communicated with all of the executors and beneficiaries and they've gone ahead and distributed an asset that they shouldn't have, um, there is a potential for liability. So I think underscoring that is it's really important to get some advice on uh, on what you should be doing if you're an executor in that position. Yeah, it can. Um, these are the kinds of tricky situations that you want to try to avoid. Um, interested to hear your comment, Catherine, that it's, um, it's a little bit more frequent. Now, how would somebody know? So it, it raises an interesting question about the role of the executor, because you said something interesting at the beginning. You have a choice, even if you're named by surprise as an executor, of whether you confirm the role that you'll take it on or you don't. Maybe speak to that particular, that first decision that needs to be made um, by an executor when, when it's time to administer an estate. Yeah, and oftentimes um, that is the first consideration that needs to happen. So if you are notified that a loved one or a friend has passed away and that you've been named as executor, often what we hear is that person will go out and start notifying the banks and say, you know, I'm listed in the will, um, I need to I need to get an understanding of what the assets and liabilities are. Well, by doing that, you've already stepped in the role of the executor. So what we talk to clients about is even before you contact anybody, um, perhaps what you should do is contact um get some legal advice to figure out whether it makes sense for you to act as executor. There is a mechanism in place that allows you to say, you know what, I'm actually not comfortable with taking on this role. I would like to renounce. Um, and then that appointment goes to this 
the second named person if there is that appointment in the will. Um, and um, a, a law office can certainly help you uh, draw up the document to confirm that no, you do not want to be that person. Um, you know, connected with that is, well, how do I know if I don't know what the assets and right. liabilities are? What if whether I take on that role is contingent on that. Um, well, uh, what we've done in the past is we've um, really carefully crafted some letters to um, banks and um, you know other asset uh, financial institutions or other asset holders to say this person um, understands that uh, they are um, that they are named, they are not making an inquiry as an executor, and we just want to understand the status of the estate. Uh, and in that way, they can properly, if they decide not to take on the role, um, they can properly confirm that they haven't intermeddled in the estate, which is some legalese for saying, I haven't represented uh, to anybody in the world that I am the executor and um, have received information that I would otherwise not be entitled to. There's great points on the piece when it is contested, right? When there's mm. issues, when there's issues with the will and then it come up after the fact. Um, I, we have a lot of conversations with clients about, you know, what certain things they can do as a family conversation develop in legal documents before and maybe you can give some pointers to the listeners on, you know, what can you do to set up before so these things don't happen? Um, I think the big one is if you under if you are under the impression that there are a couple of people that want to compete to be your executor, which um, that one's more rare. I think a lot of people now are understanding that being an executor takes a lot of work. Uh, the first thing you do is make sure you have a will because at the end of the day, the will is your legal direction and it's a legal document that sets out who has the priority uh, um, to act if something happens to you. The second thing you want to do, um, and this is particularly for clients who are older, um, who might be transitioning into seniors home assisted living and thinking about invoking some other documents um, or the help of people to deal with their finances and um, health care while they're still alive. For those individuals, you want to make sure that if you draft a will, um, you've protected the integrity of the document as much as you can. So you want to make sure you've got the legal advice so that that lawyer can say, yeah, I confirm that they had capacity. Um, you know, that lawyer hopefully is helping to mark down notes about if there is um, uh, some disagreement, uh, what your intentions were with respect to a certain asset. And also that, um, legal you know legal advice or that lawyer hopefully is helping to make sure that an interested party is not in the same room uh, when you're getting your legal documents drafted and signed um, and witnessed those are all the, th the things that uh, people fight about on the back end mm -hmm. so we try and make sure those particular factors are not factors at play um, when somebody's passed away yeah Catherine, I mean, it's such a complex issue. We'll, we'll, uh, we have to leave it there for, uh, for today's discussion. But thank you for giving some clarity around that. Uh, this, is a, this is an ongoing conversation that we'll continue to have with you. And as always, we appreciate you shedding some light on, on uh, various aspects of that planning process. And I think just reminding everybody that, Rob, if, 
If you, if you sit down in advance and do uh, some of the work up front, it's going to save a whole bunch of problems and potential work costs on the yeah. back end for the people that you leave behind. Because nobody says, the gift I want to leave behind is a nightmare right. or a legal fight or you know complexity or anything like that. So, Catherine, thank you uh, again today. We'll continue the conversation. We look forward to having you back on soon. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. We had an interesting, well... Lots of interesting conversations with mm -hmm. clients, okay? And um, I want you to start this segment. You know, you were talking to some clients about what's happening and, uh, in the markets right now and how they're feeling and so on. Share us with that. Let's get, get our segment going with yeah, that in mind. Well, I, I think that, you know, the conversations become, I don't know, so, sometimes they can be a little bit manic right now, right? Mm. Because it's, there's so much going on. There's so many things happening in the world and you can get overwhelmed by what's happening on the media and what's happening on your statement and mm -hmm. you know what does that all mean and, and inflation and all that kind of stuff and i think that it is talking about a point in times so the conversations right. that we're always having right. with clients is what is happening right now what are the events right now and how are they affecting me and it's not because we're talking to the clients about the next 30 years of their life, not what's happening this week, tomorrow, or events next year. Yeah, and you and I were both both talking about that that emotional reaction to the headlines, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the context of strategy versus tactics, and right. both of us had interesting conversations. Different different people, different families, but they were business owners, right? Effectively, or or sort of C-suite high-level people, um, and. I think, and I don't want to speak for you, but my conversation sounded a lot like yours, I think, and there, there are a lot of similarities. And in the conversation I was having uh, with this person, certainly lots of concern, emotional concern about what's happening, right? Markets go down, then they go up, and what's going on, and so on and so forth. And I, I tried to have the conversation with this person in the context of the business that they were in, right? And, you know, when I had that conversation, I said, great, you're in XYZ business, okay? And in that business, I'm assuming through the period of time you owned it, there were times where it got challenging. And, and you know, he in this case shared some examples of times it got challenging. And I asked the question, I said, okay, so you had a business, you had a strategy for that business, which was long-term, and you go through a bad time, okay? Did you sell the business and you move into an entirely different business? Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of, I got a funny look, right? It was, what are you talking about? No, no, right? And I said, well, how come? Well, because we know what we're doing, we can weather through it, we had to make, make some changes, and we talked about, okay, so when you went through a, a tough, tough time, what did you do? We made some tactical changes, like, well, we had to reduce staff at some times, right? Hard to do that, but cut costs and expense control, adjust pricing. There's all these different things that they did. I said, oh, okay. Hmm. And I said, what happened? You weathered that cycle? Yeah. And it came out of it? Yeah. And then what happened to the business? Well, we rehired people, we grew, and we kept going, right? And they were very successful. They had a very successful business. I said, so that's exactly what we're doing here, mm -hmm. right? From an investment management perspective, we have a business and we have a strategy. And that strategy is about your retirement. And that retirement is 30 years, right? We've got a strategy built for 30 years. And we're going through a difficult economic environment right now. So what should we be doing? Well, uh, you know, tactical stuff, right? In our, word, that, in our world, that means, yeah, we adjust asset classes and exposures and so on. Yep, that's what we do. And then what do you think happens? Well, the cycle ends, boom, and that's right. It's the same thing, right? And your conversation, I believe, was 
largely similar, similar to that. Different businesses, obviously. Yeah. It, it, well, it becomes, uh, we talk about this a lot, the behavioral right. science behind this, which is fascinating. Right. Right? And taking the emotion out of that. Right. Because the emotion during one period of time, if there is not a vision of a long-term strategy, is right. sell everything or do something drastic to take advantage of 100% into one area that, that may get us through this. Right. But then what? Right. Yeah. Now, to, to your point and to my point, just to put it in terms of, um, in, in language that people understand, in, in investment management, the most extreme example is you've got a strategy in place and then we, we respond emotionally to the headlines or whatever's happening, go all cash or go all oil, mm -hmm. right? Because oil is going up or go all whatever, pick your all whatever it is, right? And I'm not saying that's not a, a correct strategy if that's, what, if that's what you're doing. Like if you're in the big bet business and so on and so forth, I would argue strongly against that for retirement practice, mm -hmm. right, in a retirement portfolio because you can't afford to recover if you make that, if that bet right. is wrong, okay? So speaking specifically to the needs of the kind of people that we deal with, right, um, it's important to keep into context the strategy. And the strategy has to deal with the timeline, mm -hmm. the goals and objectives, right, the risk factors that, that, that a family or an individual has, uh, the income requirements that they want, the kinds of things they want to do in their lifestyle, um, and then just tactically adjust. So mm -hmm. remember, strategy is not a point in time, and this is what we were talking about. People get caught up in that point in time in that headline, and they lose track of the long term. Well, I like the analogy back to the, the business owner, too, and thinking about that, because <laughs> even as a, a business, you would look to divest or look for other avenues for revenue, mm -hmm. right? To mm -hmm. not be a one-trick pony. Sure. Same thing with with pillars and yep. and, and strategy, right? Yep. Yeah. So I, I I like the two. They 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 go hand in hand. Yeah, and you and I both know that. Uh, listen, it's it, it can be very unnerving when markets are moving around, and they can be very sharp movements and volatility. I, I get that, and and people are entitled to experience mm -hmm. the emotion of that. Um, that's fine. I th I think that there has to be moments, and business owners I think are probably more uniquely equipped to think through those scenarios, to try to, to dampen the emotional impact if they think about it in the context of their business, right? right? Now, I also understand that it, is, it isn't your business and you, know, you might have felt more in control in your business because you, you know how much it costs to turn the lights on and do the various things. Right. You're an expert in that area uh, and maybe you're not. So, uh, so I understand that. But the context of that decision-making and the context of staying focused on, on the big picture um, I think is, is, is just so important for people not to get trapped into making bad, emotional, irrational, mm -hmm. outsized bets and decisions that can ultimately have an impact, a, a really dire impact that they can't recover right. from. Right? Ownership bias can have a yeah. factor in that too. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's right. And that emotional, that emotional bias, there's all, all kinds of things. In fact, mm -hmm. we're going to host a, a community session uh, in September and we're going to bring in a behavioral finance mm -hmm. speaker to talk about um, how emotions uh, can drive our decision making and the impacts it, it can have because I think that it is so so important that people um, try to dial that back again you can feel it right but you need to dial it back into a way that it will not affect the long-term strategy that you've got in place for whatever that is. if it's your business if it's your investments if it's your 
kids or whatever. I don't. We're all going through it. We're all going yeah. through it. Everybody goes yeah. through it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Listen, we've got to we got to try to make that put that in English and, and translate it mm -hmm. into in, into a set of steps and activities and you know things that people can actually put in place to enjoy their retirement. And as every uh, month we do, we're going to host a seminar and talk a little bit about the framework, right? Some of the challenges, the frameworks, the strategies you can put in place to protect yourself. You can join us on our next seminar Tuesday, August 16th, 7 p.m. live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, I think, um, you know, we've got to wrap this show up, but I, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to retirement, right? Right. And each of them require specialization. Each of them require some, uh, some thought, yep. some planning, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming, right? Um, but if you want to talk about estates, taxes, investments, the family dynamics, all of those things really shape uh, a person's quality of retirement, in my opinion, right? And, and better to, to do it with a group and not alone. Yeah, well, it's very, I don't know that anybody has all of the skill sets, and it would include us in that, right? We need right. people like the Catherine Zangs of the world to help us Got with it. the estates. We need the Ken Lins of the world to help us through the tax component of it, right? So there is a team of people that you need, uh, but it can be done. And yeah. listen, it's a series of steps, and that's what we hope to, uh, to bring to you in the show, and we hope to bring to you in our, uh, in our seminars. And so to that extent, I hope we've accomplished it for you this week, but we want to thank you for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. On behalf of Rob and myself, Dave, we look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization in Canada.